standing for the reading of God's word. We're reading from 1 Corinthians, uh, starting at the end of chapter 12 and going all the way to the end of chapter 13. And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now, here's our verse for today. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, a while back, I was at the Lowe's YMCA, not too far from here, and I stumbled across a bookshelf that I think was intended to display today's verse if it wasn't for this very unfortunate uh, bucket at the bottom. And so I immediately grabbed a picture of that and sent it to my pastor buddy with the obvious caption, but the greatest of these is fidgets, right? What does this passage mean? That's what I want us to talk about today. As we reach the end of this chapter that we've been looking at for 12 weeks now, do we understand what it's trying to say? Is it more than just a pithy phrase that we put on a bookshelf? Have we received the message yet? Do we understand that of all the things that Christ's followers are called to, the greatest of them is love. Have we let that sink into our bones yet? The reason we picked this chapter in the first place so many months ago when we were planning out the preaching calendar is because our church is headed into a major time of transition. We're headed into a moment that's going to be filled with a lot of joy, there's going to be a lot of excitement, there's going to be a lot of great things happening, but there's also going to be some change. And that means there's 
going to be opportunity for conflict. And so going into that moment, we need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this message that was taught by Jesus and then repeated over and over and over again by his disciples. It's the message that's summed up in this last verse that more important than anything we do, more important than any ministries, more important than any successes that might be out in the future, more important than any knowledge, more important than any gifts we display, the most important characteristic of his disciples is our love for one another. So as we wrap up today, that's the question we're faced with. How do we ensure that we are a people that emphasize the greatest thing? How do we ensure that we're a people that focus on the greatest thing and don't get caught up in all the small stuff? That we're a people, like Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If that happens, what are our lives going to look like? What will our individual lives look like? We're so filled with love that everyone looks at us and we say, well, there's a disciple of Jesus. What is our church going to be like when we're a church founded on the greatest thing? So we got a pretty simple outline this morning. It is what a community of love doesn't look like, what it takes to become a community of love, and then finally, why love is the greatest thing. So let's get started. What does a community of love doesn't look like? What a community of love doesn't look like? Okay, so after all these weeks of preaching through this, studying through this, I still can't get over how differently we tend to read this passage compared to its intentions when it was first written. This passage, we've said it before, it's beautiful, it's poetic, it, it draws us in, uh, it's, it's something that we do want to frame and, and hang up, we want to read it at a wedding, but it's, at its core, it's a rebuke. It would be like Someone singing you a, a, a beautiful love song about their ideal mate. And then when you ask them, oh, how did you write that song? They say, well, I thought about you and then sang the opposite. That's what this, this poem is. Paul wrote this because this church had all the outward signs of success. They had all the spiritual gifts. They were growing, and yet the most important sign of a true and vital faith was absent. They did not have love. And how did Paul know that? Well, he, it's, it's because of all the other things he had to address when he wrote this letter. It's because of all the things that come up in the other 12 chapters and the ones after this. It's the things that you can infer as you read through the poem. They lacked patience. They lacked kindness. They envied one another. They were proud and they were boastful. They were filled with narcissistic self-interest. They were easily angered. They lacked a willingness to forgive each other. They loved evil, and their relationships with one another lacked commitment and perseverance. A lack of love in the church, that's a major problem. 
It's not just a small thing. We, we've already read the command from Jesus, right? This is how people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. But that call that Jesus spoke is echoed throughout the New Testament. The other writers that followed Jesus, his disciples, kept bringing this up. And here's just a, a few examples of it. First John, John says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Hebrews 13, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Peter, he says, love one another deeply from the heart. I'm showing you all this. There's so many more because this is the main thing. It's the greatest thing. When a church is deficient in love, it goes against the essence of what the church is supposed to be. It's a major problem. And unfortunately, despite how clear the Bible is about it, how clear the scripture's teaching is, it is still a pretty common problem. I think it's especially uh, common in, in today's American evangelical church. I really worry when I look at the state of the church today because I think so often our image of success, our, our picture of, of what it looks like to achieve our, our goals is shaped much more by the culture around us than Christ's actual commands. Uh, I went to Virginia last week and I ate at a Jollibee restaurant. Has anybody been to one of those? I think I got a picture of one here. So this is a fast food restaurant. It's based out of the Philippines, and it serves fried chicken and spaghetti. Yeah. I went there, though, because right before I went to Virginia, I watched this video talking about this company and their business strategy and their plans for growth and how this company intends to become one of the top five global fast food restaurants. So I ate there, and listen, good luck to those guys. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that spaghetti and chicken is, is going to overcome burgers and fries, but yeah, what do I know? Maybe they will. Their goal is to be in the top five, and, and maybe I'm going to eat my words, you know, a, a few years from now. But what about us? What are we trying to become? What is our vision? What are our expectations centered upon? What's our goal? I hope that it's not to become a top five church, whatever that means. More people, more brand recognition, more money, more influence, more power. I hope that we're not looking around at the other congregations around here thinking we need to increase our market share. And we can overtake them if we just come up with the right strategies. I hope that's not what we want because the world doesn't need that from us. 
Lake Norman doesn't need that from us. Mooresville, it doesn't need that from us. What our community needs are people who love like Jesus. And yeah, we have a big vision statement that's, that's coming out next year. And we will have plans and we will have strategies. We'll have some things to implement, but I want you to hear me say at the end of the day, none of those things matter if we are not first and foremost a community that knows how to love. And not just knows how, but a community that actually does love. Who looks around and doesn't just say, oh wow, I, I love the church, you know, the building's in great shape, the people are nice, we have a really long and wonderful history, but I mean a people who know how to love, who, who look at the person sitting next to them in the pew and they say, I am willing to lay down my preferences for their sake. I love them so much that I'm willing to, to lovingly challenge them and to call out the glory that I see inside of them. I love them so much that I'm going to stick with them when times get tough. And I'm not going to run away when I see the messy parts of their lives. And we have to love not only those people, but, but the, the people who are going to come. We've got to love the non-believer who, who hasn't even walked into these doors yet. We have to love them so much that, that we're able to be patient with them. And walk with them while we wait for, for God to work in their lives. See, our vision for the church, it can't be shaped by what the world around us calls success. It has to be shaped by this clear call of Jesus. This clear teaching of his word. The, the, the witness of his disciples. There are plenty of things that we can focus on. There are plenty of things that we can work towards. But the one overarching thing, the one characteristic that defines the people of God, the greatest of these, it's not growth. It's not power. It's not fame. It's not building projects. The greatest of these is love. So let's talk about it. What does it take to become a church like that? What does it take to, to become a church of love? The verse again, it says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Again, we've heard it, we've seen it framed in Hobby Lobby. We know what the verse says, but what does Paul mean when he says these three remain? Okay, again, the passage was written because Paul was speaking to a church that was emphasizing all the wrong stuff. They were looking to their gifts as the evidence that their church was doing great. They were looking to their gifts as the evidence that, that they were doing great. They had a productive ministry. They had some fruit. They thought, well, this has to mean we're on the right track. 
But Paul wants to direct us with this simple verse into the things that really matter. He's trying to point us to the three traits that consistently remain in the followers of Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Three things that every believer should have. So he mentions faith. And that's not in the sense of name it and claim it. You know, you've probably heard those teachings somewhere before. The idea that if you really believe God's going to bless you and he's going to make you prosperous and he's going to give you all the things you ever wanted. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about faith in the simplest sense. That if you are, belong to Jesus, you have faith that at the core of our identity, there is a faith that God's promises are true. That he is who he claims to be. That he has done what he said he did. That in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. That Christ's righteousness has been given and it, it covers us. That in Christ, God has shown us that he is for us. And that we can rely on him. We can trust him even when the, the circumstances around us are hard. We can believe that he is our father in heaven. That's faith. He says hope also defines the church. In English, we like to use hope to speak about uncertain things. Right? I, I hope that the leftover turkey is still good today. I hope that this sermon doesn't go on too much longer, right? Uncertain things. But the biblical idea of hope is something sure. Something that surely waits for us in the future. First Peter, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope, it's the knowledge that in Christ, we are guaranteed a future. We are guaranteed a life where we will reign as co-heirs forever in the presence of God. That just as surely as Christ was resurrected, so shall we be with him forever. Our hope, that hope, it gives us perspective so that in the midst of this broken and messed up world where things don't make sense where there's all kinds of pain and anxiety and fear and and turmoil that hope allows us to take our eyes off of our present circumstances to look past the uncertainty that that lies in those steps right in front of us and then to lift up our eyes and to look beyond the horizon to see into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We live by faith in what Christ has done for us. We live in the sure hope of our Heavenly Father's promises. And then thirdly, Paul says, he ends here with love. And that's the emphasis that he's been making the whole time. We're going to come back to it in just a second. But before we go any further, 
I want to make a little detour. Because I need to point out one of the major differences between this church in Corinth and our church today. The church in Corinth that Paul criticized, he was criticizing them because they overemphasized spiritual gifts. They overemphasized miraculous things. They'd gotten distracted by all that stuff. They got off course from the main aspects of faith, hope, and love, and, and especially love. But before we turn the page on this series, before we go into Advent that starts next Sunday, it's worth mentioning that I think we usually have the opposite problem today. Especially in, in our tradition, right, the Reformed tradition. The joke is always that the Reformed Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible, right? And I wonder if Paul were to observe our daily experience of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, if he might have a different letter to write us. We live in this culture today where we are told at every corner to expect that what you see is what you get. That there's an explanation for everything. That the universe we live in, it's a closed system, and the things we don't understand, well, that's just because uh, we're waiting for technology to advance or the research to catch up. But do you really believe that? Don't our hearts instinctively rebel against that? Don't we recognize that we can't be the largest thing in this universe? Don't the stories we tell and the movies we watch keep coming back to this theme that, that in our existence there is wonder and there's mystery and there is power? That there's something more at work behind the scenes. Well, Scripture tells us those instincts are right. You're not crazy. That really is the case. And I hear Christians often quoting these verses about, you know, putting on the armor of God or, or we don't do battle against flesh and blood. But, but I, I worry that they're just quotes we use. That we don't actually live with the expectation that God is going to show up and do anything. This God who we serve is not a philosophy. He's not a worldview. He's not a subculture that we live in. He is the living Lord. He is present and able to do miraculous things. More than we could ever ask or imagine. And we could stand a little more of that. We could stand to wake up to that. I wonder, as, as we're planning for the future, as you're planning for your own future, are you just living out your day-to-day? -day? What are you expecting God to do? Does he just rubber stamp your life? Is he just there when you need him in a little glass box that says, break in case of emergency? Or is he the living God? who is going to blow us away with a sense of wonder. 
Is he the God who spoke to Habakkuk and said, look among the nations, watch and be utterly astounded because I am going to do a work in your days that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. I say this because it's, it's my longing for my own heart. It's my longing for our church that, that we would not live like orphans. That we would know the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we would depend upon him daily before we take any steps. That he would not be an add-on to our plans, but that we would follow his lead. What it takes to become a church of love, like Paul describes. It's not more head knowledge about faith, not more head knowledge about hope and love, but it's we actually need God to show up and to transform us by the power of his spirit. So we need that to happen so, so that when we see our church start to grow in these ways, when we see that faith and that hope and that love on display, we're not going to pat ourselves on the back, but we're going to stand in awe and worship because we are seeing the power of the living God in our midst. That's what it takes. So finally, we're getting here to the last word of the passage. The thought we began with when Paul said, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. He says, the greatest of these is love. Okay, so why is love the greatest? Why is love greater than faith and hope? Well, it's actually, I think logically, you could probably get there on your own, right? The, the present life that we live in, the life of a believer, is a life where we have faith in God's promises. It's a life that is driven and grounded in the hope of that future glory that we were talking about. But love is greater because love is the only thing that lasts forever. In eternity, our faith will be made sight. Our hope is going to be replaced with its fulfillment. John Chrysostom, he says, faith and hope will cease when the things believed in and hoped for appear. But love, then, becomes even greater and more ardent. Faith and hope, they won't be needed anymore. But love, he says, it's going to grow. One day, love is going to be the defining experience of our entire reality. And love, even today, is the foundation of everything that we believe in and everything that we hope for. Love is the cause of creation. Scripture tells us about a God who is Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and before the creation of all things, he was living in this perfect relationship of love. And in that place, he chose to make us like him. In his own image, he, he made us to experience that love. 
We are fundamentally made to love God and be loved by God. To glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Now, because of the fall, because of our own sin and rebellion, we often don't do that, right? We spend our lives looking for other things to love. Other things that that might fill up that space. And we hurt ourselves. And we hurt other people around us. Because we try to make a relationship or a job or social status or youth and beauty the central pursuit of our life. But scripture says God is love. And that means he loved us too much to leave us in that place of brokenness. He loved us too much to leave us in that state of lost and wounded wandering that we all live in before we know it. He loved you so much that in the person of Jesus, he stepped out of eternity and into time and he suffered And he died for you to break down the barriers that stood between us and God and to break down the barriers that stand between us and each other. God reconciled us to his love, by his love, so that he could bring us into a community of his love where he dwells at the center. That's the gospel. He reconciled us to his love, by his love, so that we could be a part of this community of his love where he dwells at the center. Love is the greatest because one day it's going to be all there is. That picture in Revelation, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So what does that all mean? It means that Christ came so that we would know his love. And he made us into a people so that we don't have to wait until that day way out in the future before we can experience it. But a foretaste of that can be ours now. That's what this whole chapter has been about. Love is the greatest because it begins here and it carries on forever. That's the glory of our life together in this room. The church is supposed to be the first taste of this eternity we were made for. We're all headed for that day, the one that we spoke about last week when Robert preached, that day when we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. I love that line. That just hits me in the heart every time I I hear it. Like, what would it be like 
to be fully known and understood and accepted and loved. But right now, we're able to live that way in the church, to come without fear, to come and, and remove our masks, and to stop acting like we have it all together, to allow ourselves to be seen and know that we won't be rejected. To know that, that God has gifted us in this place with a family that's going to love us into glory. Who's going to walk with us when we stumble. Who's going to show us the path to obedience and righteousness and an abundant life. He's given us a family who's going to mourn with us and rejoice with us. Together, all of us, while we wait for Christ's return. And I don't know, that's, maybe that still sounds too abstract. I don't really know how to connect this idea, but, but I can say this to you. You are those people for me. You are the family that God has given me. You are my fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and, and children in the faith. And together, we are headed for an eternity in the presence of Christ. An eternity where we will be with the one who is love. And you know, I see that glory here. And I think about the future and I can, I can see the glory that, that lies ahead if we just take these words to heart. Not the world's standards of glory and success, but God's. I, I see, I can envision it. Can you, the people who will come here into this space and find redemption, who are going to be transformed by Jesus, who are going to find healing for their wounds, who are going to hear the truth taught, who are going to know firsthand what it feels like to be a part of a community that's built on the greatest thing. Well, let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your promises to us. And we're also astonished that they're not only waiting for us in some distant future, but your promises are for today. That your love is coming after us, as we say, even right now, in this very moment. Lord, my prayer is first that you would allow us to be caught. Lord, that we would receive that love pray especially for those who may be here this morning and 
Maybe they're visiting family. Maybe they're at church for the first time in a long time. Maybe they're watching us online. Lord, I pray that they would know your pursuit. Lord, that you're calling them to yourself. And you're calling them to your people. And Lord, I pray for us as we move towards this future. Lord, would you unite us? Would you make us one? We pray in Christ's name.